Welcome to That's a Wrap, episode number 15. All right, so we're live. Do you guys see live on the bottom? I see it on the top. It's on the top. top. top well, that's unacceptable. No, I'm joking. Uh, okay, cool. So here we are. Uh, welcome to That's a Wrap, episode number 15. Uh, we're doing a roundtable today with the uh, guys from the Projection Booth, one of our favorite uh, film podcasts. And uh, we're very excited to have uh, Mike White and Rob St. Marion. Uh, I am Eric Marshall. And I'm Nick Schlegel. And I'm Chris Cullen. And, and I'm Mike White. And I'm Rob St. Mary. There's our cast of characters today. Um, <laughs> that's awesome. So, yeah, so uh, Mike and Rob are from the, from the projection booth, and we'll put, we'll put links to the show notes to their uh, podcast. If you're listening to this podcast, you definitely should listen to theirs. Yeah. Uh, they've got 100 and how many episodes do you guys have so far? 140-something. 140. Yeah, I think we just put up episode 141 tonight. Yeah, so they have 10 times as many as we do. So, uh, <laughs> and, that doesn't, and that doesn't even count the uh, all the specials that we've done. So we're yeah. probably up near 160, maybe 160, even higher. Yeah. Yeah. So we've had amazing. 23 special episodes, yes. Wow. So amazing tenure and amazing amazing run. And uh, so when you're waiting for us to post a podcast in two weeks, go listen to a bunch of production booths and then come back and because <laughs> yeah, their schedule runs circles around everybody. It's it's amazing. Yeah, yeah, it's great. So uh, this is a round table. It's kind of an open discussion. And uh, Nick brought this to the table, so I'm gonna have Nick uh, introduce what we're doing here. Yeah, well, listeners uh, certainly know the projection booth. We've we've linked to them, and of course, I was recently on featured on the projection booth in relationship to the the upcoming book, Sex, Sadism, in Spain. There's a cheap cheap plug um, with Scarecrow Press. Hello, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yes, welcome guys. Welcome Mike. Welcome Rob. I wanted to have a round table uh with you guys and discuss something that's you know really topical particularly particularly in the last decade sort of the post 9-11 atmosphere the post uh, y2k presumed meltdown and that is sort of like the state of the industry and the future of the industry as well as the real central question of does film still matter when when we load into our uh sort of like array of problems here the the current economics of the industry are they sustainable the current technology of the industry switching over from the photo uh, chemical uh, era to the all, all digital era the cost of the industry the the rising costs which I want to talk about later in relationship to say like gravity for example or John Carter uh, the the idea of narrative collapse that that we're as a as a society sort of like um, getting more and more addicted to um, shows that don't really go anywhere or say anything or have a traditional three act structure you know sort of like stuff like Family Guy and things like that where it's just a shotgun approach and that do we have the attention span to sit through a traditional three act movie these days which kind of kind of coalesces into this this sort of idea of you know uh, Douglas Rushkoff's um, present shock, 
and the idea that there's this uh, culture of immediatism out there, and then that the tyranny of your uh, cell phone, the pings of Twitter or Facebook, um, have us all so desperate to stay in the current moment that we, we miss what we perceive to be the current moment, that we miss the actual current moment by chasing the sort of like immediate past and ignoring everything that's going on around in front of us. And so, I mean, when you, when you sort of factor all of that in, it does relate to, it does, uh, sort, of, sort of sums up, there's some problems out there. There are some serious problems in the industry. And I sort of wanted to bring all that to the table and just sort of query all of us and get a nice organic discussion going about where do you see the problems and, you know, frame, frame our answers at least through this initial framework of, of some of the things that I mentioned. So um, does anybody want to take the lead on that? I mean, we could, we could actually start off with the idea of the, the current economics of the industry. We can start right there. The idea that Hollywood is sort of incapable of doing accurate tracking anymore. I mean, the conversations that we've had on the show, uh, I would say over the past year with filmmakers such as Keith Gordon and then lately John Sayles, have been centered on the fact that that when they started doing independent film, there was independent film structure. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, in the interview that I did with John Sayles, he said that now there's so much opportunity because it's so cheap to make something that there is opportunity for people starting out at zero to make film. Interesting. The problem is it's hard to get anyone to see it because you have so many films out there. There's such a big, massive glut of stuff. And we've seen the collapse of a lot of independent studios, uh, distribution arms, and we've seen sort of the shrinking of what used to be the revenue channels, meaning that when when I was doing independent film in the late 90s, DVD was just starting. VHS wasn't quite the giggle it was. But when you talk to someone like Lloyd Kaufman, who we're going to have an interview with him up uh, in January, he talks about over his time of 40 years with trauma that now is sort of the worst it's ever been that he's never seen it as bad as it is because the revenue channels are so hard. Back in the 80s, you could pre-sell a video, you could pre-sell to home video, get the money, make the film, and plus make a, make a profit all at the same time. Like You could actually be in profit before you even made the movie. And the thing is, is the channels have gotten so sort of diffuse. Plus, I think another thing is we're looking at a generation, and I'm not of that generation. I'm 35. But kids who are younger than me, I'd say 10 years younger than me or younger in their early 20s, mm-hmm. who almost absolutely refuse to pay for things. And the fact that they refuse to pay for independent films, they would rather pull it off a torrent site, makes it hard for studios to continue to say, we'll make the small films. We're going to instead put our money on these massive $200 million blockbusters because we'll just make five of those. We'll push them really hard. We'll make our money back, and then we'll just not make anything that's in the mid-range anymore. And that's that's something that uh, I'm so glad you ended on that point because that that brings up a film I mentioned a few minutes ago, the the J- John Carter, which apparently you know cost 250 million dollars, um, and didn't even make I guess 100 million back. So it was a 150 million dollar flop. Uh, due to some very soft tracking 
so like when you just said that the studios i mean this is this goes to my point of the economics in the industry john sales told you guys that it's easier these days to sort of mount a, a, a project because of the low cost of, of the actual shooting of it in terms of like the camera for example i imagine but then you mentioned that distribution channels then are the are the hard thing, striking prints and doing and and flooding you know something other than just regional releases, so actually getting enough prints into the theaters. So then the question is, if if the studios are saying, well, let's just sort of like do five high concept, you know, action packed, low dialogue, happy ending films, so we can flood foreign markets and get our money back, like in particular Asia. Then what does what does what do we what does somebody like Sales or Keith Gordon what do they think about where where things are going to go with in relationship to the studio model being a, a sort of like a bankable model anymore when these guys are losing their shirt and have the inability to track anymore that's the I think it becomes a question of tracking they they're getting it wrong consistently these days the thing that's interesting with Keith Gordon, when we had him on, was we were talking about sort of where is it right now in terms of the business. And he said studios will either bank you for less than a million or they want a $100 million picture. And when we talked to him, he said, uh, because I I had said, you know, I really love Mother Night. It was an amazing film. And he goes, I couldn't make that now. He goes, they would not give me four or five million dollars to make a film. It's just they're not willing to put the money into that. And when I talked to sales, sales was like, he's like, we can't even get a platform release. He goes, it's like, we'll play for one week in this theater in this town and one week in this theater in this town. So the the economics of, of distribution have completely changed. And when you're talking about something like he has out right now with Go For Sisters, he's not only releasing it to theaters, but he's also allowing you to buy it to view at home right now. I figured as much, yeah. That's so so there's that kind of thing. The other thing that I think a lot of people don't realize is how much um, investment firms, hedge funds, and things like that have taken over a lot of Hollywood production, um, even more than what it was 15 years ago. I didn't it's, know. Are they underwriting it? Is that what's going on? Yeah, I mean, a lot of these... Uh, a lot of the studios and a lot of the production companies that work with the studios are nothing but investment firms. So they are linked into the financials and wall street and they're just looking at the dollars and cents. And for them, they go, okay, well, if we have a Marvel film and we know it costs this much to make it this much to market it, and here's what the averages have been for the return, that's what we're going to do. We're not going to spend $10 million. We'll spend $200 million because right. we have more of a guarantee with $200 million. Exactly. I mean, and, I think that was what Soderbergh, uh, where have I got his um, paragraph? Right. Soderbergh, I'll quote him. He says, point of entry for a mainstream wide release these days, $30 million. That's where you start. Now you add another 30 for overseas. Now you've got to remember the exhibitors pay half of the gross. So to make 60 back, you need to gross 120 so you don't even know what your what your movie is yet, and you're already looking at 120. <laughs> that kind of ended up being part of the reason why the Liberace movie just didn't happen. We only needed five million from a domestic partner, but when you add the cost of putting a movie out, now you've got to grow 75 to get that 35 back. And so he just goes on to say, <laughs> "Well, I, I mean, the thing is too is if you're looking at it as financials, they're looking for quarterly returns." They're looking for annual returns. I would say most of us on this show would raise our hands and say the movies that we like are not the movies 
that made all the money the first weekend out of the box office. It usually took six months, a year, two years, five years, ten years mm -hmm. for this movie to get discovered. And then we go, this is, wow, this is a gem. This is something that people should see. But the problem is, is that if you're an investor in that film, you got to wait too long to get your money back. Right. Yeah. This whole fetishization of box office returns really kind of bothers me. Like every week I see like, oh, so-and-so topped at the box office and knocked this one off and da-da-da. And it's almost like this kind of schadenfreude when it comes to who didn't do that great at the box office. And it's just like, it, it's just this big game for people. And it's like, can't we wait just a little bit? But there is no time anymore either is the other thing. I mean, if a movie doesn't perform the first weekend it's out, it could be gone the next weekend. You know, I, I make yeah. a point of waiting for things to go on discount at my local theater and that starts two weeks after it comes out but there's a lot of times where a movie won't even make that two-week cutoff before it's just yanked out yeah, of the theaters yeah i agree i, I um that, that's the to me one of the tragedies i guess of of this new system is that that runtime or uh, theatrical run times are so much shorter and because there's this uh, emphasis on opening. the opening weekend and if you don't get a big opening weekend you don't get that second week and you have to hurry up to see things you know i, I missed a lot of films this week or this summer because you know i can't see everything but you have to i just I, you have to be so quick you know i saw um uh, 12 years of slave this morning Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, at my favorite time, 1230 in the morning or in the afternoon, where there are like seven other people in the theater, right. it's awesome. Right. But I saw it because I know if I wait till next week, I mean, who knows if it will still be there next week, you know, and that's and I think that's one of the problems with, you know, because a lot of the revenue now comes from DVD or uh, video on demand or other things. And, and like uh, I think it was Rob that said, you know, it takes years to make it back. The, right. the, the theatrical run isn't as important. It's you want to make that money quick and get it done so you can get it out and DVD, and that's that's a real to me a big problem. Right. Those, that the Sorry, hedge funds though were um, running Hollywood, and it's kind of funny if you think about it because you have um, kind of Hollywood once again modeling what the automotive industry is doing. You know, back in the in the early studio era when um, you know the Hollywood modeled after the automotive industry and this mm -hmm. kind of factory production, and the automotive industry in the last ten years has been going to hedge funds and management companies that have nothing to do with auto companies that have been buying auto companies like Jaguar and Land Rover that got and Saab that all got kicked off of their big parent company owners are now owned just by hedge funds. So it's kind of interesting how you have this, again, this Hollywood is kind of mimicking what the auto industry is doing. Soderbergh even said in his speech, you know, that, uh, he, he made that analogy that Hollywood might be like Detroit before the bailout. <laughs> <laughs> and you know the thing that's funny is people think that video on demand or DVD or Blu-ray or whatever, that those are lucrative revenue streams and they're not. Like talking in, in my interviews, like I said, both with Lloyd Kaufman and John Sales recently, mm -hmm. Sales said to me, he goes, we may have to look at something like what bands do. Now, if you look at the music industry, for example, Bands don't make anything on the albums anymore. They just don't. Right. The albums are not lucrative. They basically give it away. They make their money on two things, one, touring, and two, merchandising. So can you get your song into the commercial? How many T-shirts can you sell? And how many people can you get to come to the show? Now, the one thing that Sales said, and I think he, he's got a point here, is he goes, I don't necessarily know how um, – 
filmmakers can sort of leverage what the music industry can do because it's not like we're going to go do a live performance somewhere and that's how we're going to make our money. Yeah. You know so, who there's one model that I would that there's only one person I know who's done something similar and it, I think it's always been like that in the music industry though because it wasn't the artists generally that made money from record sales it was the um it was the studios, the production companies, whatever, whatever those things are called, the, the labels. Um, but the, the, it was always the touring and the, and the merch and stuff. But now that there's no money at all in sales of records, mm-hmm. you know, because no one wants to buy them, as Rap said earlier, um, they're in trouble. But um, the, one, the one thing I know of that I can think of um, is uh, Kevin Smith's Red State. Mm-hmm. When he released that, he decided to try to fund it privately as much as he could and make it for whatever he, he could get. And he found one of those private financiers who you know, gave him – it wasn't that much money. I can't remember what it was, but it wasn't, it wasn't a whole lot. Uh, he made the film. He didn't spend any money on marketing or anything, and he toured with it. And that was kind of an interesting model where he would tour with the movie, bring it to different cities. He brought it here to Ann Arbor. Mm-hmm. It was like 40 or 50 bucks a ticket, I think. But he did, he would show the film and do a Q&A for like an hour or two um, afterwards. And I think he, uh, from what I understand, you know, he he made money on that. He, you know, uh, recouped a lot of the costs of, of making it. Now it's, you know, on Netflix and all that stuff as well. So he... he He's done something similar. I'm not, I don't know if that's feasible. I, don't, I mean, it's obviously not feasible for most um, people. I mean, he's Kevin Smith, and he can do that, right? And he's already got this image uh, of, of someone who goes to college towns and t- does talks in general right. and then films them yeah. and puts them out as an evening right. with Kevin Smith and stuff. So right. he just sort of piggybacked on that. But it was a great idea. I remember almost, when he came. It almost seems like – it almost kind of re- uh, seems like a return to the old form. And what I mean by that is when you look at the old showmanship of the 40 film, Thieves, yeah. Yeah, or um, – William Castle. Yeah, William Castle or yeah, even women. someone like Kroger Babb who would bring mom and dad to town mm-hmm. and, you know, the women can go in the afternoon, the men go in the <laughs> evening and make it all exploitation. Right. Uh, it, it almost seems like a return to form. The other thing that, that I find interesting is what do we think about something like um, – like funding the albums, funding the films through crowdsourcing, because we've seen an right. explosion in this with big name talent. We've seen, you know, Spike Lee. We just uh, were were in working with uh, Adam Rifkin and Penn Jillette on their thing. I, I just talked to Zoe Cassavetes about her project. It just seems that there's so many of these, um, you know, filmmakers who are now going that route and going, you know what? I would rather take fifty dollars from you now <laughs> and then make the film than to try and get someone to give me the money and then I get the $50 from you to buy the DVD later. What do you think about that model? Are, did you say Rifkin and Pendulette are doing a, a Kickstarter? Is that what's going on? Yeah, they just finished it. They made over a million dollars for oh, a horror Rifkin. film. Oh, really? Wow, yeah. I'm, I'm a big fan of Rifkin. I think that it should come together nicely. It seemed, well, and of course, Schrader with the Canyons, you got you know a very similar situation with him. Um, it's interesting, isn't it? I, I don't, I, I'm not entirely sure what to make of it. Um, other than the fact that I know that the canyons, for example, was made for, I think, it was, was it two hundred fifty thousand? Do you guys know the the number on that? I'm not sure. I think it was, or he got two hundred fifty thousand. I think from the Kickstarter. I don't know. Yeah, I think what, that's what it was, and he put his own money, and he and um, um, Lindsay probably put some into it. No, maybe she did, but uh, Brent Easton Ellis, the writer. Right. Um, the screenwriter did. I think they put their own money in. I know he did at any rate. But yeah, it was it was not very much money. But yeah, a lot of it was Kickstarter. It was crowdsourced. You know, again, the, 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 to answer your question though, Rob, yeah. really quickly, I would just say that for me, the problem of that of that model is just simply 
uh, dissemination and sustainability. That's that's where I see it being a problem. They don't have the infrastructure, just like the independents and our Dave Friedmans, and we were just talking about a few minutes ago, uh, and our you know Herschel Gordon Lewis's and stuff. They you know they they never were able to really crack the mainstream, and 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 so that's my problem. Not my problem, but my worry is that when you do films like the. For example, we're going to do an episode on the canyons, but Eric and and Chris have had a, a Dickens of a time trying to find the damn film. So that's yeah. I guess my 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 point. I think with that model though, the Kickstarter model, the other the other point is uh, caveat is making people aware, mm-hmm. uh, audiences aware yeah. that the studios are not going to finance these you know smaller budget pictures because when um, when several of these Kickstarter programs are going on. There were people who were heavily criticizing these filmmakers for going on Kickstarter, basically saying, you know, you're Spike Lee. You have access to uh, a plethora of resources. You're essentially taking resources away from the little guy. And there was a lot of very heavy criticism of some of these um, more established uh, directors who were turning to Kickstarter. And I, I think it's because of the fact that people weren't aware of basically the topic one of the topics we're having uh having right now and chris there's a real competitive edge in the independence right now according to like some statistics that soderbergh dropped in his speech which i won't get into ultimately he was saying was that fewer studio movies are taking up a huge chunk of the pie in revenue when you have twice and three times as many independent films scrambling for a smaller piece of the of the pie so, um, yeah, so it's not only, you know, dissemination, sustainability, but marketing, too. They don't have – because that, that when, when they talk about that $120 million, or whatever it may be in a film, 30 of that's, you know, built into the marketing campaign right there. Just talking about the battles in order to get into the theaters and things like that, I remember when I was making independent film in the late 90s, and there was an article that I read that said that at that time, around 97 – there were a thousand independent features and they said of those independent features, 10% would get distribution. Mm-hmm. So a hundred. And then of those hundred, only about 10 of that hundred. So 10 total out of a thousand would get theatrical and that out of those 10, <laughs> only about two or three would do really, really well would mm-hmm. be like, at the time, something like a Blair Witch or something or clerks. And, you know, that was at the time where you still had film and it was expensive. Like for me, like, like I was talking about this recently, I said to do my stupid little vampire film in 1997 with some friends of mine, it cost us $35,000. And that didn't even count the amount of free stuff we got. Like we had people to give us deals on things. We like beg, borrowed and steal to, to put everything together. And that was to get us all the way through to a print and to a, a beta, a digi beta so that we could put it out on VHS and $35,000. I'm like, if I had $35,000 right now, I could redo the Lord of the Rings trilogy. <laughs> like I could do, I, I could open up my own studio. I could do like 20 pictures Easily. for $35,000. It's just that the cost of entry now is so much lower. But the problem, once we talked about, is that it's hard to get people's attention. There's so much out there and it's hard to get an audience. It's hard to get them to pay it. You know, it's hard to give them to give you five dollars for it. 
Yeah, Damn. I mean, yeah, generating interest is is like Chris was saying a minute ago is 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 that's the hardest piece of the puzzle. I mean, you may have you know, John Sales has got a really lucky campaign going on right now in that a lot of the major networks I've seen devote a lot a tremendous amount of amount of coverage to his film. A, he's John Sales. B, he's got some you know great actors involved with this picture, and so I mean, it's 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 got a nice little junket going right now, but. You know, um, well, and kudos to his PR people too. Absolutely, yeah, major kudos to them. Um, but the, the the fact is, is uh, you know, when when Hollywood keeps assaulting you with, um, I never thought I'd say this because you know, growing up a comic book nerd, <laughs> uh, you know, I I never thought I would come come to the day when I would say that. I think that they've beat the hell out of this genre as much as they can, and it's just it's it's gotten. True to like you know the cyclical uh, nature of genre, uh, it, it, it's 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 you know where I think they're running on empty with some of this stuff. Um, just the and and the constant rebooting of the franchises and yeah you know the, but but the, the people are still going. They're flocking to these films. They're making their money back plus you know and like Rob mentioned earlier, the merchandising for all this stuff and the sort of vertical integration of it all is yeah. staggering. Well, one of the things I think people go, okay, why do we keep going to these things? You know, God, this is horrible, right? Like, people will <laughs> grouse about the trailers, but they still show up to see it. And mm-hmm. why? Because your choices have been limited. Mm-hmm. If you think about it, your choices have been limited because there's not as many theaters playing as many films as there used to be. Right. And when you have a 12 screen theater and they're showing Thor on four of them, right? you know, so it, there are fewer choices for you now. So you're basically at the point where I'll stay at home and I'll watch the Netflix streaming or something, or I go to the show and I see whatever it, it, it becomes sort of this, you have no choice. You're kind of captive. And the privileging over of spectacle over narrative too, which, which, you know, is flies in the face of the origins of, uh, not the origins of cinema, but the refinement stages of cinema. You know, like like um, like the piece we all read. It talked about how uh, Hollywood is sort of like returned to, in some ways, it's this this uh, the Tom Gunning notion of the cinema of attractions, right? So it's all spectacle now. But the the studios made their their bread and butter and established you know strong strong roots by by perfecting a classical Hollywood narrative style that had seduced the, the country and, and got families to go in the 30s and 40s to, to, to pictures, you know? And now that seems to have degraded somewhat, and that kind of, that kind of gets into the next topic here, which is the collapse of narrative. Um, there's been a lot of discussion lately about, you know, how the fact that we're very distracted viewers and, uh, and, and we have this culture of immediate, immediate, blah, <laughs> immediatism, having a hard time saying that tonight. And, um, or basically just, you know, instant gratification uh, and that we don't want, we're, we're certainly not appointment watchers anymore and we're turning to television for narrative complexity and, and the sort of like development of character and story arc over much longer periods, like a, a season or a, several seasons. And how does film keep up with this and, and does it keep up with it? These are the questions. Yeah, I think you, you have, you're onto something with the spectacle because I think it, it, it goes back to what Rob was saying in that the only way they're going to get 
people into the theater they feel is is to give you more spectacle like there are certain films you feel oh well if i'm gonna see this like take pacific rim for example mm -hmm. if you're gonna see it you need to see it in the theater because it's big and loud and, and and crazy right now it's on dvd and i don't know if i want to watch it right or the whole 3d thing so that's that's what gets people into theaters right but um but that's a good question, Nick. I mean, I don't know. I mean, as far as the rest of Hollywood or the rest of filmmaking in general, I think that people still want to see good, complex narratives and, and whatnot. But like like Rav said, you go to the AMC 20 in Livonia, and there are 20 screens, and eight of them are Thor, and four of them are, you know, whatever, you know, some other big thing, and it doesn't leave room for anything else. Anna, and then Anna. you go across town, and the other theater is playing the exact same thing, just slightly different configurations. Instead of starting at 2, the show started at 2.05. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. Exactly. So if I want to see Thor, I can I can see it in 10-minute increments in four different uh, theaters within 20 miles of my house, right. but and I you can't. Can, <laughs> you can see it in D-Box at this time. You can see it in 3D at this time. Right. You can see it on an IMAX screen at this time. Yeah. And who knows how much money you'd be spending if you saw all all the different versions of it. Right. But Mike, but, you and Rob know that, that Eric and I and Chris all teach film. Uh, at, at various universities, and here's the thing, man. Like the the sheer amount of energy that we have to invest into at least starting the semester off by getting students to kill their cell phones during screenings, you cannot even begin to imagine. And I mean, I've always made the analogy that it's you know it's fry in the slurm factory for those of you who are future <laughs> Slurm. Basically, because like Fry, you know, looks as he's drinking the slurm, he sees it's coming out of this big giant alien's ass. It's being secreted out of the ass. And he's like, oh my God, that's disgusting. And then he takes another sip. You know, and that's, and, and that's basically, they, they, there, there's a, 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 an actual addiction, a, a physical addiction to their phone. Uh, like I started at the top of the show by saying that people have this, um, more and more people, and it's not just, you know, students 18 to 25, I'm talking about culture in general, uh, an addiction to their phones to be constantly connected to their various selves uh, in the digital world uh, at the expense of the here and now, of actually living their life, you know, because they have so much anxiety over staying caught up. I see this manifest so much in my classroom at, at, at you know, various universities over the years. It, 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 it goes into this question of the collapse of narrative. Do you, Mike, do, some people have posited, and I would like to get your reactions, that people have a very hard time sitting down and investing themselves in a 120-minute narrative that, does, that isn't giving instant gratification. But that is the nature of story. You have to invest in story in order to get it, to get it payoff. I'm sorry, I was just uh, checking my Facebook. Uh -huh. what, was the, uh, yeah, what was the question? <laughs> what? what was the hashtag on that one? <laughs> Wait a minute, I'm sorry, I'm getting a, I'm getting a tweet. Hold on. Yeah. <laughs> we have a, we have, we're going to start a segment, guys, uh, this is for the Projection Booth guys, uh, called uh, Kids These Days. Oh, yeah. And uh, <laughs> we're just going to have Nick, we're just going to ask Nick a question, have him go, <laughs> kids these days with their cell phones. Have him rant for right. a while. Yeah, let him rant for a while. No, but he's right though, I think. But I don't know if that leads to the collapse of narrative. I think that I think that well, filmmakers that make movies that 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 ignore narrative or privileged spectacle might be catering to what they believe are shortened attention spans and appetites for bigger things with less depth. But I don't know if that's 
actually true. Well, I mean, I, I call I, it I'm, the avatar syndrome when I talk to my students about about it. The avatar syndrome? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Because that's you know, av- avatar. Uh, and and Nick and I have had long conversations about my disdain for John Cam uh, for James Cameron. Let's try and but, keep value judgment out of this. And John Cameron okay. as well. And John Cameron. <laughs> as well. uh, but um, you know, Av- Avatar was 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 basically a, a rehashed story that had been told many many times with with all special effects to try and keep people interested. And I, and I think if you if you if you show a group of people, especially younger people, Avatar, they're going to be riveted. But if you show them the same story, which was Dances with Wolves, mm-hmm. they're going to get bored. Or Pocahontas. Yeah. Or so, you know, but, but to be fair, Star Wars was a recycled story sure. from a movie and from mythology, right? I, I, mean, I but we were Chris, that if, they, if people would actually... I mean, I have to agree and disagree simultaneously and say, I think he's right, but I think that somebody... You take an 18-year-old, I don't care who, who they are, where they come from, and, and get them to actually disconnect and sit down and invest some time in Dances with Wolves, I think, I think pretty soon... By the end of the first act, they're, they'd be all in if you took away their cell phone and just sat them in a room to watch it. They'd be all invested in it because they wouldn't be distracted. They would not be on something else. They would be in the here and the now. You know, the before the ubiquity of cell phones, uh, a friend of mine who is a master mixer for film for a long time, for probably 30, 40 years, he said to me that part of the problem he, he saw with audience was that they weren't, they weren't literate enough. And what he, what he meant was, he, he would say to me, he go, you ever go to a film and you're laughing your ass off and you look around and like nobody's getting it. Like you're the <laughs> only guy in the theater. Uh, he, goes, he goes, you want to know why that is? He goes, because you get the references. And why do you get the references? Because you read, because you're connected to the world, because you understand politics or history or art or whatever you understand all of these things and you understand what the filmmaker is bringing across and that's why you enjoy it i talk about this uh about a a friend of mine and we went and saw opening night of fight club and i remember this specifically it was a packed house it was couples because it was probably hey honey let's go see the new brad pitt movie (laughs) and they went to go see it and there was only like five people in the whole theater that were laughing their asses off at it and i was one of them and it was really weird to look around and see the tension on the back of people's necks because they were watching something that they didn't understand and i think a lot of it has to do with what i will call cultural literacy because they're not plugged in enough to understand what the hell is going on aha but here's the paradox rob if they're going to the university say as one place where they can get some cultural literacy or some cultural capital but they're not fucking paying attention because they're distracted you you know then we've got an egg and the, the chicken and the egg scenario right it's like back then you're saying it's like okay that the, the, there's not enough uh, cultural capital on the on the part of the audiences to to get a lot of the the humor or the sophistication of it and stuff like that and i'm with you i understand that completely my my not my complaint or not nick's rant but my observation now then is that it's doubly hard because now like you said this is before the ubiquity of cell phones, but now with the ubiquity of cell phones, it's doubly hard. So basically what you're saying is one layer is on top of the other because you have, you have the lack of attention layer coupled with the, you don't have enough education layer. All right. Well, it's weird. Like rather than making reference to classic literature or, or even, you know, previous films, now it's more of like this meme kind of idea where it's like, you know, going in and seeing, 
I don't know, the third X-Men film it was, where it was like, they threw in the I'm the juggernaut bitch line, and I was like, what is this from? Only to find out that it was a, uh, an online meme, and I was like, oh, okay, oh, so goodness. that's how wow. disposable our culture is oh, getting, yeah. is that, you know, I mean, the, the all these, you know, the... Uh, um, the starving games and epic movie and those those a holes that are making those things uh, Seltzer <laughs> and Friedberg, you know, they're recycling pop culture from five minutes ago, and it's like they're the yeah. most immediate films you could possibly have because it almost feels like they made them the day before and just threw them threw them in the theater, and it's, it's like, the, it's, uh, it's, yeah, go ahead. It's update on the Warhol quote: "In the future, everyone mm-hmm. will be famous yeah. for fifteen seconds." I guess. Yes. Yeah. You know, Soderbergh talks about in his in the airplane in his speech. He says, "I spent the extra sixty bucks to get to get the extra leg room." And he's like, "You know," he goes, "There's a guy on the other side of the aisle," and he pulls out on his iPad. And and Soderbergh's like, "Hmm, white white guy in his thirties." He's like, "I'm going to do a little demographic, uh, you know, like observation." So he says, "I'm curious to see who he's going to watch." So he and then he goes, "Well, he's loaded a half dozen action." extravaganzas onto his iPad and he's watching the action sequences skipping over the dialogue and the narrative. Hmm. And then he it's calls like, it mayhem porn, basically. Yeah. Five and a half hours of mayhem porn. <laughs> well, I, I was going to say, it sounds like modern porn. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, it's yeah, like it's the not... disaster porn that you know so many of the summer movies are. It's like, how mm-hmm. can we destroy New York, Paris, Los Angeles, etc.? bigger and better than the previous kind you know the, the 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 last guy i mean i think the worst offender of that this year was the man of steel where it was yeah. like you know oh you've God. got both the you know beating of the dead horse of the uh superhero trope and then you've got the disaster porn going on and then you've got the you know not being true to the character just for the sake of narrative as well I you know I was really torn with that film. There were so many things that I admired about it, but they were given out in such small dosages, in in and that they were kind of overshadowed by the the sort of never ending sort of like you said the 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 uh, mayhem porn and the the uh, uh, and the never ending battle. It was like enough already. I mean, these guys have been fighting for forty five minutes. Right. I mean. It, it, I have problems. We've talked a lot about the marketing of movies and how that first weekend is so important and you're constantly being barraged by commercials and previews and all these things. I have so many problems with the way that previews are cut and we see so much of the film and there's such an easy narrative to so many of these films that you have everything figured out before you even go into it. I mean, every twist, every turn, everything that you, that the filmmaker might've thought was original is going to be shown in that preview or figured out by a competent audience, you know, as I'm watching the, and I haven't seen the movie yet. So you guys can tell me if I'm right or wrong, but as I'm watching the preview for shutter Island, I'm like, Oh, Leonardo DiCaprio, he's crazy. And he's <laughs> imagined this whole thing. It's like, no Why big old guys. 12 bucks now? Yeah. Yes. Exactly. I I felt the same way when I saw the uh, the trailer for The Sixth Sense, and I talked to a friend of mine who went to a media preview, and I said, "This is what happens at the end." He goes, "How'd you know?" I go, "It's in the trailer." Yeah. Wow. <laughs> oh yeah. I mean, even t- you know, we we constantly are just fawning about television and how original it is and all this. And there is a lot of great television out there, but there's more bad TV than there's good TV. I mean, yes. I'm if highly invested in watching the blacklist and I've been able to predict everything that has happened this season from the first episode. Sure, I'm like, sure. Oh, okay, well he is this and she is this, and this is going to happen. And this, and then this will happen. And it's playing out just like I said it. So I, 
a lot of times I'm like, should I even bother watching it? It's great watching Spader's performance, but there's no narrative, you know, originality here. I've seen everything coming. Yeah, and I mean that, you know, Mike, that gets into discussions I've had with both Eric and Chris and a million other people about like, yeah, there is a lot of really exceptional television out there. It's raised the bar. Cinema forced it to to raise its bar. I mean, television was always aiming to be more cinematic and it, it sort of finally got its wish. It just so happens that it's, it's coming at a time when cinema is becoming more and more um, unbelievably um, sort of like monolithic in its stupidity. <laughs> well, you know, Mike and I quite a bit on the show often focus on films of the 70s. Yeah. And oh, we I find – God bless you. <laughs> and, for doing and, that. And, and like, there's just something about films that were created between maybe 1966 and probably about 83 mm-hmm. that for some mm-hmm. reason in there, the whole like new Hollywood kind of thing that they were taking chances. The, the, the system had collapsed, you know, basically. And it was, it was yeah, the lunatics taking over the asylum again. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, there was some trash in there too. But the thing is, is that, they had to figure out a new model because the model that they had was not working for the studios. They weren't making any money. They couldn't get the youth in. The young people didn't want to come to the films. And that stuff still holds up 40, 45 years on, you know, even to 30 years on now, some of it. And it still holds up. It's still good work. And, and to me, that is what you get sometimes with some TV where it's like some of the TV, like I was watching, um, I I went in and binged on Breaking Bad, Mm -hmm. which I really enjoy, Mm -hmm. you know. That to me, Breaking Bad would have been a film in the seventies. Yeah, that's why, yeah, you know, yeah, I you know, that, but that's great. It, yeah. it, it would have came out around the time of Taxi Driver. You yes, know, this, yeah, you know, kind yeah. of anti-hero guy. There's certain aspects of it that I that are a little bit more, um, I, I would say, conventional. In that, you know, uh, talking about Breaking Bad, I said to someone, I go for a guy who wants to rebel, he still wants to maintain his family. Mm-hmm. That to me is still holding on to the you know the suburban uh, you know American dream kind of stuff, but you know overall I think that that is that is where it's gone because the problem is is that they're not willing to take risks to make things like they would have made back in the seventies and early eighties. Which is All such right. a pity. Yeah, I I, uh, I agree completely. I was we were talking about. Uh, blockbusters. I don't know if it was in the Man of Steel episode that uh, episode nine with me and Nick. I can't remember, but I was talking about how, like, will we watch something like Jaws? You know, just to stick with blockbusters, right? Jaws is a, a really rewatchable film, but I'll I'll never watch Man of Steel again, right? You know, it just came out Tuesday, and I really considered buying it on my way home from work, and. You know, I, I just didn't stop at Best Buy. Yeah. I was like, why do that when I know that there's about, all right, what was it, about 145 minutes or something? I knew that there was about 30 that I really, really loved. I thought the film lived beautifully in its quieter moments and kind of like lost it in the bigger moments. The, you know? the only sort of big comic book movie that's been out recently in the past 10 years that I really appreciate and will go back to is The Dark Knight. Not yeah. not the first film, not the last film, just the Dark Knight. The, the second with the Joker, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it was spectacular. It was a really it, good. 
Yeah, and, and, and that's one of the few that I can go back to because for me, it, it's got more going on in it. And it is about the war on terrorism and the police state and surveillance yeah. state and all that. stuff. I mean, there's so much stuff going on in there. But they were able to couch it in a way that makes it palatable to a general audience. This is This is part of the reason why I think something like The Simpsons has worked. You know, is that the Simpsons used to write on two levels. You had the base level that anyone could get, and then you had this higher level that worked in where if you could get it, it was great. You know, right. it was just these little extra things. And for me, that's what, like, The Dark Knight, why it works for me. Well, I think a lot of The Dark Knight works because of the performances as well. And yeah. for me, I always go back to Iron Man because I thought that the way that that was directed and the way that they utilized Robert Downey Jr.'s you know aptitude for improvisation mm-hmm. just played perfectly with that character. And he is, I mean, that one was kind of a, a almost a meta film as well, just because you've got the Robert Downey Jr. quote unquote character that he has been for all these years, this very troubled young man who finally kind of started to grow up and give up the the booze and the drugs and all this, playing this very flawed character. And I was like, this is perfect. This is the perfect casting for this film. And it just, it works on that level for me. Um, So yeah, that's one of the few superhero films that I go back to. And the rest, you know, there's so many where it's just like, you know, big bang action scene and just inherently uninteresting characters. Like, I really have no desire to go see the new Thor film just because I don't really care about him as a character. It's like, where is the struggle in a God? You know, it's kind of, it's somewhat of the same problems that Superman has, but at least Superman has the outsider syndrome. But Thor (laughs) is just, he kind of is oblivious to a lot of the things and he's bigger than life. I was, um, I mean, I would I'd agree with, with Rob very much, although I'm a fan of the franchise. I like all three uh, Nolan Bat- Batman films quite a bit. I, I, my, my personal pick is actually the third one. But for me, I think it was, um, in many ways, I, and I also agree with Mike, that Iron Man really raised the bar, you know, because it was done so well. Um, for me, I think in many ways it was, it was uh, Zack Snyder's imagining of, of um, The Watchmen. Mm. that uh, really kind of simultaneously departed from as well as embraced the sort of like codes and tropes of the established genre and sort of like almost sort of like set itself slightly apart from it all um, because it wasn't Marvel, wasn't DC, you know. Well, actually it was DC. Um, what am I talking about? But what I mean by that is it wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't like, you know, major characters. It was, you know, it was from... Essentially, right. the, uh, um, I had a friend who who I was talking about like what comic should I read? This is you know twenty years ago or whatever. I'm like what what would you recommend that I read? And he said I would rec- recommend the Watchmen. And he said it's the Citizen Kane of comic books. And he's not one of these guys. <laughs> That's true. He's not one of these guys to throw that kind of thing around. He's not one of the guys to say you know <laughs> shakes the clown is the Citizen Kane of clown movies. <laughs> he said it's the Citizen Kane of comic books. And I said okay. By that you mean it kind of took what was existing and rewrote it and expanded it and gave you a whole new flavor of what comic books could be. He's like, exactly. He said, what Orson Welles did for film, Alan Moore did for comic books with The Watchmen. And when I read it, I said, God damn it, he's right. He's exactly right. With some of those cross cuts that that were going on in that book, the 
you know, multiple narrative threads that were going on, the whole idea of the black ship. I was like, yep, you're exactly right. This is the Citizen Kane of comic books. Question, Rob? Is that is that what I'm reading? From? We have a question in. Yeah, I see that. Woo! The uh, the one from Albert Sibener. Is that is that what you're looking at, Sibener? Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, so it says, uh, I'll read it and we'll see what we can respond to. It says, no question, just a comment. The only reason New Hollywood happened was because the studios realized they could make a profit without investing big money. I don't think they were interested in storytelling any more than they are today. The audience was. Yeah, I, and I think that's a, that's a great observation. I'd agree with that 100%. I mean, the business yeah. of the business was always a business. But the the I mean the the old heads the Xanax the the jail you know the Jack Warners, the the Selznicks uh, the Louis B Mayers they they all knew story I mean they all knew they 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 knew a good tale at the same time, they knew what uh, how to feed a hungry audience by the same token you know I mean they they were the the kings they were the kings you know. Um, William Fox and, and and all of them. So I mean, w- when when they left, when they died, when the studios died with them, he's this gentleman is in, in absolutely correct. Uh, that the the emphasis didn't switch over necessarily because they thought that that's what was going to uh, make people happy. It, it it went over because it was turned out to be popular and profitable because the audiences were primed for that type of telling and Bonnie and Clyde and Easy Rider and the Graduate paving the way for the character actor becoming a leading man in the 1970s. Yeah, I think that speaks to, maybe speaks to what Nick was saying earlier about if if it's the audience that was ready for it, that maybe, like I said earlier too, like if there's a perception that people want these big, you know, kind of special effects heavy narrative light things and that those make money, but there is proof, the proof is in the pudding in terms of box office. Uh, You said last episode, Nick's sales are up, you know, they're making money. This gentleman's question though, our comment is great in in the sense that it also forecasts and predicts, I think some, one of the major things we want to talk about today, which is Hollywood is so scared, so chicken shit. They are, they are basically just scared they're they're completely scared they the, the idea here behind everything is profit motivations clearly however if they were students of history you know it's like what you know it's like an errol morris's uh, fog of war you know haven't you ever read a haven't you ever read a history book uh, mcnamara you know <laughs> when he's in vietnam it's like you know if they would just read their history they'd understand that basically from the time of cave paintings to <laughs> the the matching of cave paintings to text Fusing the two together just, you know, eventually gave us this this concept of cinema. And to paraphrase uh, Ripper Street, you know, it is the precise uh, moments of our lives recreated for us, for us to watch, you know, in a darkened theater. And and it doesn't really matter how much spectacle is there. All that matters is story. Story should be privileged. And for me, I think that it is. Um, I think that story is privileged, but you know it's also it's privileged by us. It's not privileged by the studios. They keep feeding us the same stuff they think we, we think we want to see, and we vote with our dollars consistently over and over. And it's sort of just like a never-ending feedback loop. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I mean, I agree, but it like yeah, I mean, it it does beg the question though if people keep going to see it, and we're I think we're part of the problem. I remember when I saw Man of Steel, I tweeted. I saw Man of Steel in the theater. I'm part of the problem. Mm. <laughs> right? <laughs> See, but the thing is, is that if we want it, I think the conversation you're trying to have is look at all the stuff they're releasing. Isn't this all dreck? 
And my, my thing is, I've always talked about on the show about how, um, you know, people will talk about a filmmaker or they'll talk about an actor or something like, oh, it was horrible. It was a terrible film, but this one's really good is like percentages, right? And we're all Michigan boys. And I always like to use Ty Cobb <laughs> for this in uh, that mm-hmm. Ty Cobb was, you know, <laughs> considered one of the greatest hitters of all time. Grady was, you know, he was horrible racist but let's just talk about the baseball he hit over 400 so that means when he went up to bat out of a thousand four times out of ten you know that's what he got so my whole take is is that they put out so much product they put out so much product there's so much product being created that there's only going to be a small percentage of that product in any given year that's of really any consequence for history and what I mean by that is go back and look at – pick one random year. And th- this is what I like to also say about the Oscars. How many people are busting their ass today to go see the English patient? How many people are dying to see the English patient? How many right. people are dying to see you know, Forrest Gump? How many people are dying to see like um, – I-, I don't know. Just like go through like the great – like the, the uh, best film Oscars. Yeah. If you look at the list of the best film Oscars, you're just like, really? Kramer versus Kramer? Like people are dying to see Kramer versus Kramer? It's like, look at the look at the what I will call, you know, because I'm a boxing fan, look at the undercards that year. Look at the ones that didn't win yeah. awards or they won a screenplay award or they won some other stupid award or they didn't win anything. Those are the ones that we really seem to like. Those are the ones that seem to have the legs more than the big film that everyone thinks – was going to be the big deal. Now, the, to me, historically, this goes back to the silent era because film was originally created as ephemera. It was just created, you showed it, you threw it away. That's what it was. That's why so many silent films are missing. It isn't because they burned up. It was because after they got the run in the theater, the guy's like, oh, whatever, throw it out. We made our money. They didn't think about it that way. It was disposable no. art. That's the way it was created. We're the weirdos who think that this stuff should hang around longer than it does. <laughs> we had a um, a podcast where uh, devoted to uh, screenplays and some of our favorite screenplays, and that's exactly one of the things we talked about was the Oscar winners. And if you go back and look, you'll always see that uh, certain genres are are favored over other genres. And not not only that, but a, a lot of time it's it's just the it, it, it's sort of like dramatic and epic storytelling is 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 privileged by the Oscars. Um, and therefore, you know, I mean, it says something a little bit something about culture as well that we're we're much more likely to remember a Shawshank Redemption than we are Transformers Three, you know. Yeah, I think Rob's saying something a little different, right? I think you're saying the things that win awards are the things we don't remember, right? I I think the percentage. I'm just talking about the yeah, percentage yeah. of everything yeah. that's created. When we yeah. think about the percentage yeah. of everything that's created, there's a very small percentage that is of any real consequence in, in the yeah. long scope of art. Like when we go to the art museum and we're like, oh, look at the Van Goghs, look at the uh, the Rembrandts. Think of the thousands of other painters that were around at the same time that no one's ever going to know that yeah, that's we're true. doing yeah. pedestrian work. Yeah. Well, it's like it's, look at film noir, and you know, there's hundreds of of films that have been categorized as film noir. There's maybe like ten I would go back to. You know, it's not. I mean, and I love film noir, and I love what they were doing, and there's some interesting things going on in certain of these films. But really, it's like, okay, yeah, you know, there are 
ones that definitely stand out from the mm-hmm. others. And that's just, you know, in to your point, Rob, it's like, okay, pick a year like 1942. How many of those films have you seen? How many of those films are going to be memorable? You know, mm-hmm. maybe a handful. You know, it's, it's really, and were they mm-hmm. the ones that won awards? Maybe, maybe not, you know. How many are even on DVD? Right. Like, sometimes it's the ones that are not memorable that are the most memorable. The ones that were marginalized, the beat, you know, the, the in their beat. time. Yes. Right. No, 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 not in their time. For all time, films exist permanently, right? I mean, like a Citizen well, Kane exists now as it does yeah. in '41. No, no, no. Well, no. Aircraft, all, the I mean, other, all films, but I mean, basically, right. a film is made, and if a, a print survives today, then it's mm-hmm. just as relevant. Or not relevant, but it's just as a legitimate an object. Yeah. As was then it still existed as a physical manifestation, yeah. so only we change, you know. I mean, and that's something I I pointed out on Rob's uh, Facebook thing. There's like film is fixed, me, you know, it's a, it's fixed in a point in time. Um, it is what it is, and so you know, when we say look at a year like 1942, who are we to say what what's memorable and what's not? Um, we probably didn't see a lot of the films from 1942. A lot of but I would argue that at this point you can't see the films, a lot of the films from 1942, because a lot of them were not preserved. Somebody well, I made. Think, a I think the majority of films us. put out by the studios, the major major studios, are were, are probably uh, yeah, they're there and that they're think. somewhere. Yeah, but I right. mean, yeah. you know, like like David Hogan had said, you know, a lot of those 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 B units were you know uh, built up of really skilled technicians, both in front of and behind the camera. Um, just they just didn't have the money thrown at them, and they and, were, yeah. And they were also allowed to do something a little bit different, right? Because it wasn't the A picture, which we're yeah. talking about, the mm-hmm. big hundred, two hundred million dollar film. They, you know, to, in today's world, they were allowed to take those chances. They were allowed to take those risks, and that's why those are remembered. While a lot of the A pictures. I've kind of gone by the wayside. It's like it was okay when it came out in 1942. It spoke to that time, and that's what it was. But it doesn't hold up now. And I think right. that that's really what the best we can do as as reviewers, as researchers, as, as watchers, as film podcasters. But is it fair to compare it to now, Rob? That's it, my it, point. You don't. It, you don't. All really... art. All art goes through phases. There are certain things that are accepted and loved in its period, and there are things in. It'll fall out of favor and but come isn't back. Isn't that the point of historical context to put it in its proper context and not compare? The Stanley Steamer to a Porsche today because their different <laughs> technologies produce them, right? Oh, of, of course. But at the same time, I think that you know we can't hold on to things and go, "This is really important," right? But I, it's, it but I wouldn't want to watch <laughs> well, it just just because my grandmother loved it doesn't make it. Worthy. Right, and just because you know the the English patient, I'll pick on the English patient. Just because the English patient was winning all these awards and getting all these, you know, all uh, all this laudatory praise and stuff a few years ago doesn't necessarily mean that in 10 years anyone is going to give a shit about it you know like once the commercials have stopped running once the the miramax money machine has stopped you know chugging out how many people Uh remember shakespeare in love it's not something that we go back to very often it's not something that is really you know going to be it obviously it exists physically exists and and will be there forever but in this, you know, just a few years removed, it's not like it's this powerful statement or even an enjoyable little lark that much. You know, it's it's an okay, it's a meh, but it's not like the, the movie that people made it out to be at that time and place. So there is an importance to historical context, but there's also the idea of we have to think of 
what was going on at that time as far as even the marketing idea of it. So I'm sorry to I keep harping on the marketing, but it's just it's <laughs> oh, no, that's really a very valid point. I mean, like for me, like the English Patient holds up beautifully. You know, uh, I I think it it's an extremely well done film. It's got a terrific score. It's based on a very famous novel. The acting superb. The cinematography is gorgeous. I think it works beautifully. You know, it's still, it, and I, I don't like. I was just holding hold it up, up as an example. I'm, no, I'm, I know, and I'm, I'm just continuing with the example. Like, and, and but I don't like to use the phrase "holds up," you know, because it just, for me, it sort of demeans the work, you know, to some degree uh, by by saying, and then of course we're getting into matters of taste, you know, and and taste is subjective, clearly, and built upon a lot of things that Rob talked about earlier, cultural capital. Well, I think there's a lot of stuff. We talked about films from the 70s. I'm sorry to interrupt, Rob. We talked a lot about the films from the 70s. A lot of the stuff that we, that I personally hold up as like this was a wonderful thing really would have been considered trash in the day by everyone. You know, And now, all these years removed, it's in a different light. So I, I can see where, you know, some uh, a film that was and I won't pick on the English patient anymore another <laughs> film <laughs> that was heavily praised and just everyone really enjoyed at the time I'll, I'll pick on avatar people you know that that movie made billions of dollars how memorable of a work of art is that Not that's very well that that's why when I just read that there are three more films coming out Oof, and the yeah. next one comes out in like two years from now, I was thinking to myself, I'm like, I haven't had one person come to me and go, you know what I really want to see? I really want to see another Avatar. No one has said that in the history right. of the world. Well, so, well it's funny. We watched that movie where the guy was finding all those two-tape uh, Titanics everywhere. It's like yeah. people bought them in droves when that movie came out, and then yeah. now they, they litter um, flea markets across the country. <laughs> well, with Avatar, I mean, we're, we're also looking at the, the, the James Cameron machine. You know, Avatar got, you know, James Cameron got into bed with Disney, and they're building this Avatar theme park in Florida. So you know, it, he's got this vested interest to kind of make Avatar this, this experience and turn it into something bigger than it deserves to be. My my thing is is that I do understand sort of the historical context and you know when things came out their importance. But I also agree with you too that you know we change. For example, in December we're going to do uh, Mike and I are going to do uh, like our favorite film of all time show. Mm-hmm. And he's got his film, I've got mine. And my favorite film of all time that if, if someone said, you know, pick it this is what I would pick. The first time I saw it, I absolutely hated it. And I had to come back and see it again, like five, six years later. And it just blew my mind. And I said, I was totally off when I looked at this the first time. And I can understand how that is. It's like, we grow, we get more, as you were saying, cultural capital, we understand the world a little more. And, and that's a value. So, I mean, there, there is that aspect to it, but the, really the point that I was trying to make much like no one in the history you know, in the past, you know, five years since Avatar has come out, has come up to me and said, you know, I can't wait for the next Avatar film hmm. is, you know, a lot of times the movies that we really love are not going to be the top of the card. It's not yeah. going to be the big fight. Mm-hmm. It's going to be the ones that were down a little bit that are a little bit different. They were allowed to take some risks either because they were you know, the B movie arm of the studio, or they were this little independent film or whatever. One of my favorite films, and I will talk about it all day long, is a movie, a guy shot in his apartment for a hundred dollars. 
and it's amazing. It's the most amazing thing you'll ever see. Oh, you have to share that with me. So it, you know, there's just, just, um, you know, being able to take those risks and to really um, do something interesting. And, and I think that's really what you're kind of talking about is where is the audience now in yeah. terms of, are they willing to sit down and invest? Do they have the cultural capital? And at the same time, is the studio willing to meet them? And from what you're saying is the studio is so cynical, they believe everyone is so stupid and attention deficit that they're not willing to put in the investment to make a decent film. I think that a lot of this is to tie all of it together. The Thai Cobb, uh, you know, mm-hmm. what you say, 400, and the and what um, Mike was saying about about marketing and what Nick's saying is is I think the you know, a lot of it has to do with distribution and exhibition because a lot of the films that we want to see are, are being made probably, right? It's just a matter of where can you see them when your local theater is showing, you know, two-thirds of the of the screens are showing some crap you don't want to see and the economic impetus is on, is on uh, opening weekend. So yeah. the stuff that you might take a few weeks or a month or two to find – you know, to hear about because you don't have the marketing, they don't have the marketing budget is, is here and gone perhaps. Um, you know, luckily we live in Detroit, which, you know, it takes a while for things to get here in the first place. So, you know, we have a little lag time, I guess, I guess that's one bright side to that. But, um, you know, when, when Avatar is out or the English patient or whatever it is that, that is the big blockbuster thing that, you know, the new Wes Anderson film, Nick, if you want to go there, um, what are we not seeing? What are we missing? Because it hasn't gotten the distribution that the big films or the marketing that the big films are getting. And I think Rob's right. These things are being made, but maybe not as much as they should be. And they're not, they're not getting, they're not big hits, but I don't care about that. I just want to see them. Word of mouth is is obviously a, you know I mean word of mouth and and sometimes critics will you know take little darlings underneath their wing and and uh, you know yeah. foster a film and get it some 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 attention like 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 obviously our first podcast where I I we you know I had, I picked the film that for me was you know the film in 2012 that affected me the most deeply which was Perks of Being a Wallflower you know and um there was a small uh, clearly a much smaller film from a first time director. Um, but I thought it was just wildly captivating and, you know, it spoke to me on so many levels. So, I mean, there's a, there's a, a lot of stuff still being made out there. Like you just said, Eric, and to tie everything we were talking about for me, it still comes back to story, you know, and, and, um, I mean, it'll always come back to story for me. We don't, they don't teach screenwriters to write action sequences. We have to retrain society here. I mean, to, to focus on story as a powerful tool that fr- it frames and shapes our lives. Narrative is everything, and and I mean Aristotle had this figured out 2,000 years ago. The fact that the Aristotelian themes still hold true today says that none of you know none of this has really changed. People, it's just that we think it has, and Hollywood stupid. They don't they can't figure it out, and we're stupid too because we sort of don't demand a different flavor. But at least living in Detroit, we <laughs> get. I mean, and, you know, granted, things may take longer to get here, but you know, we we still have three great independent theaters. Um, you know, the main, the Maple, and the DFT, in which we can see um, some of this stuff. Like you know, like blue, blue is the warmest color, which just is at um, the main. And I was talking to my students, and I asked them how many people had ever seen a film at the main, any of the independent cinemas in Detroit, and three people raised their hand. Yeah. And it just it blew me away because and I and I told them I mean I I spent the last three and a half years 
living in Orlando, Florida. And in Orlando, we have one independent theater, and it gets you know, it gets a new film maybe once every few weeks. So I was starved for access to um, non-mainstream cinema. I didn't want to go to my local AMC to see the la- you know, the latest Hangover Part 15. Um, and when you don't have that, when you're when you're in a market that has absolutely nothing, um, you're you're just not going to see it. There's there's a lot of people who aren't going to be able to experience a film like. Uh, blue is the warmest color or or whatever just because of the fact that they don't live in a market big enough for it to get there one of the things that has changed also that nobody's brought up because we don't even think about it anymore is the video store and how important the independent video store used to be to all of us i'd be willing to say being able to find things we normally wouldn't find the idea that you could go in there and you had someone who was smart and who would kind of curate you know it was almost like uh the the the, the parallel example is going into a really good record store and the guy going, have you heard of this band? No, here, check out this out. Here, check out this record. It's the same thing. And that's the real sorrow when you only have a few video stores left. I mean, granted, um, I was happy to see Blockbuster go recently, but at the same time, I was sad because okay. I did realize that some kids out in the hinterlands, all they had was Blockbuster. And maybe that was the only place they were going to get that, you know, Godard film or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, I, it was almost like I, I think Mike and I talked about this on, on one episode. Where we were talking about um, about Nirvana and how when they put out In Utero, they were told by the big change, you need to put out a censored version. Mm-hmm. And Kurt Cobain was like, okay, fine, we'll do it. But the reason to do it is because if we don't do it, then these kids wouldn't even get access to this kind of music at all. And then maybe when they get older, then they can get the real thing. So just the idea of having curatorial space like that is um i I mean maybe the internet does fill that void but i think the thing is is that there's so much stuff in the internet there's so many different blogs there's so many different podcasts there's so many different writers that it's hard to kind of figure out exactly who's who's giving you the the straight dope or not well and there's so many of all of those channels that you just mentioned that are covering the exact same thing you know, there are just a, it feels like a handful of movies that people just go back to over and over again, maybe because they're classics, maybe because they're fun to talk about. But other times it's just like, OK, you know, do I really need to read one more article about this particular film? Do I need to listen to another podcast about this particular film? It's just like, you know, enough. It's, it's like the echo chamber sometimes. It's like, please, can we can we try another film? Can you can you go outside of your box a little bit and maybe, you know, investigate something else because that's where some of these gems are i mean we really don't need to you know read the uh the 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 piece that talks about all of the friday the 13th films it's just like please you know we know these movies we let's move on let's look for something else so we tell you that our next episode is uh, on the Transformers series. Very nice. No, Very nice. Joking, it's not. It's it the, the changing of Sam Witwicky. Yes. And then the one after that will be about Citizen Kane because no me, one talks about that. Let me ask you guys, <laughs> amongst us, who has seen Gravity? I have. I'm raising my hand. I have okay. too. Mike, yeah. Eric, Rob? I didn't get a chance. Okay. And Chris? I have not yet seen it. Okay, so for Eric and I and uh, Mike, um, 
I kind of want to eventually get around to asking you guys, you know, in sort of an organic way, uh, why film matters, you know. But um, I think I had a moment when I was watching Gravity um, in IMAX 3D, and I thought to myself, I, I mean, I actually asked myself the question of like, why am I experiencing so much anxiety? Why am I so sutured into the narrative of this film? Why why am I so invested in these characters? Why am I trying to survive along with them? And and why am I having such a great time? <laughs> you know, because everything was shaking. I was because of all the subjective camera work. I was moving my head left and right. You know, I was just I was invested in a way that I'm not invested and and. and 3D emphasized this and enhanced this, but it, it, it certainly I, I would have experienced it in 2D as well. The, the I guess the point I'm trying to make, or the, really trying to make, is that film matters for me in that moment in a way that reminded me of why I fell in love with cinema in the first place, why I love going to a darkened theater and and gathering around uh, in the in the company of strangers and and just you know getting into this dreamlike state. And projecting myself into the shoes of the of the people that you're watching, that is the the greatest thing in the world. And there's nothing quite like it, you know. There's the, you can play video games, and that's great, you know. And and I mean, they have they develop incredible narratives. You're you're the hero, you know, which is great. Uh, you can watch television, that's wonderful. You can listen to music, that's that's an entire different art form and stuff. But there's nothing quite like cinema. And for me, it'll always be relevant and it'll always matter uh, because of films like like Gravity, really. You know. Yeah, you know, I'm going to play maybe devil's advocate a little bit. Um, I think one of the draws of Gravity, though, is the spectacle of it. We had this discussion, though, Eric. Yeah, uh, yeah, we did. But you know what I mean? Like we, you're kind of harping a little bit on on the reliance on spectacle by the by the Hollywood by Hollywood. And I love Gravity as true. well. Let me let me interrupt you right there before you go any further and say at the expense I think you, of narrative. No, but I we had this discussion, and I I think you're being polemical just for ratings. I think because <laughs> I said to you we have both in that. I thought that there was yeah, it's a survival narrative, mm -hmm. but I mean nevertheless. But, but what you mentioned just now was was the 3D and the immersive nature of it. But I think I said that it enhanced the experience. Mm -hmm. But I think that's what's going to get people in the theaters, right? You know, all right, fine. Fuck gravity. Yeah. The point I'm trying to make is no, gravity's great. Go... I love it. I'm saying, but you know what I mean? Like it's it's part of it, though, right? It's the immersion, like going to the cinema. Yeah, but I mean... man, the, yeah, the the all right. If we take a look at how many films are 3D that let's have ask, been made of the let's 15, ask a different years. question. Let's ask a different question. How many of the five of us have been to um, the cinema in the last I don't know month or so? I have. Okay. I have. I have. Uh, no. Rob, Mike, I've watched a million movies. Yeah, I have. Okay. Yeah, so have I. Last weekend. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that's the important thing too, right, Nick? I mean, is that like that's what gets us in, right? You know, something like like you'll probably buy Gravity when it comes out, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I probably will. Too. Yeah, I probably will. Too. But um, yes, the theater experience of yeah. it was was yeah. different. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because that's a whole different thing. And we talked a little bit about the the theater going experience a, a couple of several episodes ago about the whole, you know, people talking. Da da da. da you know, that's why I go at twelve thirty in the afternoon, right? But I think going back to what you were saying, Nick, like, why does film matter? Was the question you were trying to answer, right? 
Well, what I was trying to say was that yeah, I'm I'm I in an entirely different episode, guys. Eric and I already had this discussion. We sort of vetted it already, and 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 I went into uh, I think a fair amount of detail about why I thought there was a substantive narrative in the film Gravity, uh, apart from just a, a survival tale. Um, and so I was saying that in that episode that I think clearly we can have both. You can have yeah, you know yeah. you can have a, a well written film. That happens to capitalize on the state of effects today as well. That's, um, you know, I mean, that's not just sort of mindless, you know, sort of like fat calories that are clogging our brain. You know, like we go to all the, <laughs> sort of like watch all this stuff, but we get nothing out of it. You know, and there's and gravity provided, I thought, some nourishment. Yeah, I agree. I agree. So what about the rest of you? Why does why does film matter? We all we all obviously think film matters because we all have you know we have two podcasts here that talk about it, right? So I'm going to go left to right on my screen of who's on my screen. Okay, so Chris, why does film matter? Um, <laughs> I'm going to go back to um, something that one of the PDF, and when I was reading the, the PDF, um, they were saying that, that why film matters, and it said something to the tune that film matters because film is in all of us. Um, and and I, I think that's just the, 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 the best way to say it. I guess the cop out saying what they said but you know there's there is no other medium uh artistic medium literature that can express stories and express the human experience uh as good as cinema and i think as long as there are people as long as there are human beings living lives and who are interested in stories and they and and, and they always will be you know that that's kind of a uh, point, but you know, people will always be interested in stories. We'll always be reading stories to our children, and and yada yada yada. But as long as there are human beings who are interested in in other people, um, then there will be cinema. It's it's cinema, just is. It, it, it's not one thing or the other. Cinema just is. It matters because cinema is. So okay, that's, sounds that's good to me, uh, Mike. Uh, yeah, I, I was just, can I ask a clarifying question? <laughs> yeah, sure. What film matters today? <laughs> Do you mean the actual physical medium of film or no, the actual? No. Okay. I think I, yeah, I think we mean more is just cinema as an institution, right? I yes. think that's kind of the broader question, right? Because right. film is Why a does... medium. We didn't even talk about that today, really, but that's a whole other kettle of uh, fish right but i think the cinema is an institution just for practitioners i think and just you know and, and archivists uh, yeah 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 um i mean it yeah. is an amazing art form and people tend to forget that it can be art as well as entertainment and it can be informative as well as being artful and entertaining it can be so many things to so many different people and that's one of the reasons why i enjoy it and I enjoy looking past the surface and trying to find what some of the other motivations are. I love, you know, Rob was talking earlier about the whole layer upon layer uh, idea uh, in a negative light at the point where he was talking about it, but in a positive light, you know, looking at the original layer of the narrative and then what happens to lay underneath that. And that's uh -huh. one of the things that I enjoy the most about cinema and does it matter is film important does film matter 
yeah, I think it definitely does. I kind of live and breathe it. So I would, I would definitely hope so. Otherwise, my life has been in vain. <laughs> no kidding. Uh, Nick, I feel like you've already answered. You kind of started no, this. No, 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 I, yeah, okay. I, I, no. I actually haven't really given my spiel. I mean, I was just talking about – yeah, so when I referred to gravity before, it was sort of just the impetus, you know, for a lot of this discussion. But clearly, you know, to echo what Chris said and to echo what Mike just said, uh, a fi- film, is, you know, it's our stories, you know, and, and it, it, it matters. It matters because it is basically, you know, everything these guys just said, but it's also a deeply personal experience. Cinema in, incorporates uh, so many other art forms, like we just talked about it, it incorporates music. And, um, and it incorporates architecture, and incorporates the theater, and acting, and and and, and uh, art direction, and um, photography, obviously, and, uh, and acting, and costume design, and just you know, go on and on and on and on. It is it is the sort of eminent art form of the 20th century, the dominant art form of the 20th century that just collectively showed us our fears and our and our desires, our fantasies. And it could cheer us up, could get us through depressions, could could excite us, could make us scared, could traumatize us, could make us cry. It's it's film will always matter. And I think as long as we like to still go into darkened rooms and, and see stories unfold in front of our eyes, it'll it'll always matter. And you can take any like I said earlier, the Perks of Being a Wallflower was my favorite film of last year of 2012 because it lived so beautifully in its quiet moments. Sounds good. Rob? Well, for me, I'm going to take more of, I guess, maybe a a structural approach in that um, there was an interview uh, talking about Watchmen. There's an interview with Alan Moore where uh, Alan Moore refused to put his name on any of the films that have been made out of his comic books. And matter of fact, he doesn't like films made out of his comic books. And he said that the reason being is I created this for this form. If I wanted to make a film, I would have made a film. And for me, there are certain advantages and pluses to writing a novel, to painting a picture, being a photographer, making a film. And that is why I think film will always endure no matter how it's created. Not just narrative, but I mean, one of my favorite filmmakers, of course, is Stan Brakhage. So the idea of you can use film in so many different ways, but the question at the bottom of it is what are the elements of what film is and how people interact with film that makes that the ideal medium for you to express that idea. Would it have been better for you to do it as a comic book or write it as a song or make it a novel as opposed to make it a film? And I I think that sometimes there are things that come to the theater that um, didn't need to be a film. It just didn't. And the, the question is, what is it that film has as its pluses and minuses as, as an art form that can help you to tell this story or bring across this idea? And that, I think, is, is, is the kernel of why film will endure, no matter if it is shot on film or if it is digital or if it's shot with your cell phone. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I've done myself a terrible disservice by making myself go last because you guys had such good answers. Um, but um, and you know, and I agree with all of you. I think you know, um, to me, we see a lot of. To me, I see a lot of crap 
And it's that gem that you see that speaks to you that really gets you. But it's also a thing like today I was, uh, you know, a little depressed, you know, trying to avoid some of the stuff I have to do, the grading and whatnot. And I was like, let's go see a movie. I don't care what, <laughs> you know. And we went and saw 12 Years a Slave, which was not an uplifting comedy or escapist thing at all, um, I can assure you. Um, you know, it was depressing. It was it was powerful. It was a amazing film but the thing was i got to sit in the theater for two hours two and a half hours and that's what i like to do and uh you know especially on a tuesday afternoon and it was great but i agree with rob as well that you know i like stan brackage as well i like avant-garde stuff you know and it doesn't have to be narrative necessarily but um you know i'd look at something like synecdoche new york you know it's one of those movies that didn't get any awards didn't get any oscars one of those those films that i think you know we'll all remember as years go by because it does something as Rob was saying that is uniquely filmic, right? It's something that would not, could not have existed as a play would not exist as a novel necessarily. And it's, it synthesizes the arts as, as Nick said, but it also is unique. And I think once, when you see a film that you're like, this is something that would not have existed before the invention of cinema, whether it's like you said, film or digital or cell phone, that's, you get that feeling, right? You get that. This is awesome, right? And and I, I agree. It'll endure uh, through the twenty first century in, in whatever form it is, because because of all of that. So I kind of copped out and used all of your answers and synthesized them a little bit, but because <laughs> oh, <laughs> I, yeah. I went last. So yeah. So I mean, yeah. Clearly, we're all very passionate about film. I mean, from the minute I get up in the morning to the minute I go to bed at night, I'm thinking about film, or writing about film, or lecturing about film. And I mean, it, 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 it too passionate about it, perhaps. <laughs> I mean, it kind of runs my life. <laughs> mm. <laughs> yeah, I wanna, I wanna thank. Uh, we all wanna thank Mike White and Rob St. Mary for coming on. Um, it, what's the URL for the projection booth? It is projection-booth.com. Yeah. Yay. <laughs> yeah. I, I think a lot of our listeners probably already listen, but those of you who don't should should definitely go. I, I thought this was a great roundtable. I would love to do this again at some point if you guys are, are Absolutely. Game. Yeah, totally down with it. Thank you so much for having us on, guys. We really appreciate it. No, we really appreciate you coming It was on. great. I can't wait to hear your... Uh, um, you know, there, 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 there should be some reciprocity here. I think I noticed you guys have got a ratings-a-thon uh, uh, event coming up, so I will be sure and attend that. But I think maybe Eric and I and Chris might join in on your uh, favorite film of all time episode and why, if you're, if you're not too proprietary. We, we might give that a stab ourselves because I know what Chris's favorite film is of all time. I know what my yep. favorite film of all time is. I don't know that I know Eric's. I have a couple of guesses, though. <laughs> I have a couple of guesses for Eric as well. Have um, Have any of you dedicated a chunk of your flesh to said film? Uh, a chunk of flesh? No. I don't no. think so. Did you? <laughs> I did two oh years ago. Oh, my God. <laughs> Was it seven? <laughs> Not in that means. I mean in terms of a tattoo. Oh. oh, oh. oh uh, I thought you meant the Shakespeare route. Yeah. Like pinching your finger in the DVD case or something. Right. <laughs> uh, oh. Chunk of flesh. Yeah. Uh, have you, go. Mike? I haven't. Have you? 
No, my uh, religion forbids me to have tattoos. I see. Yeah, I yeah. See. He 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 won't be able to get into heaven. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. My laziness and lack of money prevents me from getting tattoos. <laughs> mine, mine was a birthday gift, and um, I just decided to go ahead with it, so I did. Oh my god! I nice. can't wait to find out what it is now. When, when are you guys well, recording that? Uh, it'll be in December. It is uh, December eighteenth. Is the show. Okay. And uh, if you go to, I think it's it, Mike. You can get to all of our shows, our future shows through what is it, the Facebook group? Is that correct? Yeah, or via our free app that you can get for your iPhone, Kindle, Fire, or your Android. Ooh, That's right. yeah! Congrats yeah. on the app, guys. I downloaded it. It's fantastic. Wonderful. Thank you. Maybe I had to wait the, like two or three days <laughs> before it was available for iOS. It didn't take long though. You guys said, "Hold on, iOS is coming," and sure enough, it was there. Excellent. <laughs> Wow, this tattoo is. I want to. Well, whatever. We'll talk. You can you can <laughs> see it. I posted it on one of the events. Oh, wow. <laughs> cool. Go Excellent. figure it out. I don't know. Oh, geez, I wonder. God, <laughs> I'm curious. I want to take a couple guesses. And Mike is it's literally impossible. I mean, you know, I I, I could take a, a couple educated guesses, but geez, I mean, <laughs> it, it, Mike Mike's seen everything. Mike made so. Yeah. Mike, Mike will tell you what his favorite film of all time is. It's all over the place. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. Everywhere. It's the only the, the only uh, film that I have a separate, dedicated uh, Facebook page for. So, yes. Mm. Even wrote the liner notes in the DVD release. Really? Yeah. Oh, that's very cool. I was very happy about that. All right. I'll look into it. <laughs> <laughs> and that one's dropping on December 25th, so it'll be a oh, Christmas gift for you. Stay tuned. Yes. <laughs> right. Tune in. Great. Thanks. Thanks a lot, guys, for for coming on once again. Thanks. So That's much. a wrap. Yeah. All right. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.